listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, February the 4th in the year of our Lord 2019. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we're going to be taking a look at a reading for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, which will occur on February the 10th. We're also going to be taking a look at another of the readings this Wednesday for the Bible study. The Bible study means that congregations can meet at 9.30 at their church, listen on KFUO uh, to the Bible study for a half hour, and then talk about it for about a half hour. And that's what we'll be doing on Wednesday. But let's take a look at a very interesting text from Luke chapter 5, the gospel for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. Because of the calendar, Lent won't start until March. So we've got, uh, what, five, six, seven, and eight Sundays yet to go for Epiphany. And what's the purpose of Epiphany? Epiphany is the season where it becomes clearer who Jesus is and what is his purpose here on earth. Uh, Yesterday, we did a sermon on Jesus telling the demons to be quiet, even though the demons appeared to be giving correct doctrine. They said, you're Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Son of God. Uh, You're the Christ. Why would Jesus tell them to be quiet? Uh, We gave about five reasons why Jesus would do that. And one of them is kind of unknown to many of us, but in Jesus' day, when a child was named, for example, Zachariah naming John, it was very important that Zachariah had authority over John as his father, plus he had a relationship with him. So when the demons wanted to refer to Jesus as the Son of God, by giving him that title... They were trying to get authority over Jesus and saying we have a relationship with him. And had Jesus not told them to be quiet, the Pharisees could have used that. See, we told you these miracles he is doing is by Beelzebub. So what we're taking a look at here is a reading that many people are quite familiar with about Jesus telling the disciples to put their nets down in the water and they enclosed a large number of fish to the point that their nets were breaking. So let's take a look at this. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, now that's the apostle Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, Jesus obviously had a a good voice, and if you're in a boat and the water is not rushing by and making a lot of noise then he can be heard by the people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
Now, remember, Jesus is a carpenter. He's not a fisherman. And so Simon replied to a master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. See, he's trying to help Jesus understand, you know, you're not a fisherman and you need to realize that what we are doing ended up with nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when the fishermen had done this, they let down their nets, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So that's the history, and we believe that everything in the Bible is absolutely true. But you can even believe this and still not be saved. Because believing the history of the Bible doesn't save anybody. What needs to be believed is what this epiphany is showing, that this is obviously the Son of God, if not God himself who is able to do this tremendous miracle. Now, Jesus applies it. For he and all who were with Peter were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, they became disciples, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Wow, there is so much to be talking about here. Now, you've noticed I skipped one verse. We're going to get back to it. But how many times have you thought of someone, maybe it's a relative, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, and they appear to be not believers, and you don't think anything would ever move them to be believers. Well, let me share with you that nothing you do or say will move them to be a believer. A lot of people think that if you use reason, people will begin to believe the history of the Bible and then be more open to being saved. That's not true. There isn't a process towards salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not work on the basis of reason. He works on the basis of the Word of God. I am astonished how many people have gone through adult instruction that others thought would never become members of the congregation. But for some reason, as they hear the Word of God taught properly, they begin to understand. And the Holy Spirit uses that to create faith in them. Faith isn't belief in the history of the Bible. Faith is belief in the promises connected to that history. So if you don't be speaking about the promises connected to, for example, the cross of Christ, then people will not be saved. Because the promises include the gift of the forgiveness of sins. 
But they're not going to receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins if they don't think they're sinners. So the law, which is not a means of grace, needs to be preached. And when I'm talking about there's three uses of the law, there's the use the government makes of it. We're not talking about that use. Then there's the use the church makes of the law. When a person becomes a Christian, they learn the will of God. And we're not talking about that third use. We're talking about the second use of the law, which is accusation. I was just talking to one of our listeners last night on the phone, and he was applauding a sermon that was very pro-life. In other words, there was information in the sermon about how many babies have been aborted. It was 61 million, which is really tremendous. And he was very pleased with the sermon because there's a lot of pastors who will not be talking about the pro-life because they're afraid they're going to divide the congregation. Well, after he was done talking, I simply asked him a question. You heard the sermon, right? Oh, yes. Where in the sermon did he attack the people in the pew? And there was kind of silence. And... He couldn't remember. Why would he attack the people in the pew? I said, well, if there was an attack, if there was not an attack of the people in the pew on the part of the law, then you didn't hear a sermon. You just heard a good lecture. We've talked earlier about what is not a sermon. Uh, Self-help sermons are not really sermons because, listen, they're self-help. You're to help yourself get a better life. That would be the Osteens, for example. Or you may hear a very good exegetical sermon. That is a sermon that deals with what is the Greek and Hebrew text really saying. And there's a lot of insights that are not obvious from the English translation. In fact, that's why I keep reading good scholars, etc., because we're continuing to find insights into the Bible that really make a difference in how we understand the particular text. It's not that anything changes in theology, but these insights, oh, I didn't realize that that word in the Greek can be referring to baptism. Uh, Dr. Martin Charlemagne, a tremendous professor who has fallen asleep in Jesus, he would find baptismal language in many places that the English is not very clear about. And so that's what I mean by insights. Oh, I didn't know that that uh, word is really talking about baptism. But there is another kind of sermon that I hear, and that's called a topical sermon, where somebody decides a topic, and maybe it'd be the pro-life, etc., and they speak about it, and people are, oh, it's terrible what's going on in this country in regard to abortion, and particularly what some states have said. And so people in the pew who are pro-life are very appreciative of hearing what they think is a sermon on that, when actually it's just a topical lecture. 
Now, what I'm about to say may surprise a lot of you. If a sermon does not attack, or a better word to use maybe, accuse the people in the pew of having the same problem that the text is talking about, then it's not really a sermon. It's a topical discussion or maybe a good exegetical or a lecture uh, or a self-help sermon, uh, but it's not a sermon. A sermon must accuse the people in the pew. So how does that occur with the event about letting down their nets and gathering a lot of fish? Well, I skipped one of the verses. Let me reread it. This is after they let down the nets and both boats were filled with so many fish that they began to sink. Verse 8, Luke 5. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, in a three-year system of readings, often the Old Testament reading is connected to the gospel. The epistle may be just an ongoing reading as it is these days from 1 Corinthians, where you just do one chapter after another, and there's not really a relationship between it and perhaps the Old Testament reading and the gospel. But the Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 6, and Isaiah sees a vision of God. And listen to verse 5 of Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, that's a similar situation to what Peter, he recognizes that this is not just a common human being. This could be God himself who has the ability to fill a boat with fish when good fishermen couldn't catch anything for a whole night. And he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now that gives one insight how you can accuse people in the pew. How? Well, There's another occasion after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead when Jesus is on the shore and they're fishing and not catching anything and Jesus tells them to let down their nets in a certain way. They do that and all of a sudden fish are caught again. What does Peter do in that case? He jumps into the water to go to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you can see the difference here. But in Luke 5, Peter is saying to Jesus, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But in the second event, he jumps into the water to get to Jesus. That's not saying depart from me. What's the difference? It's the difference between the law and the gospel. How so? Peter 
was under the law when he was first called to be a disciple. He considered that, as with Isaiah, boy, you don't want to come face to face with God because you are a sinful man and you could die. But in the second occasion, he doesn't depart from Jesus. He goes to swim to Jesus. Why? Because he's had the experience of Jesus being in the upper room, having risen from the dead. And what was the words that Peter heard? Peace be unto you. See, here's the difference between someone who lives under the law, thinking they get right with God by what they do. They, they want to depart from God. They don't think they're worthy enough to come to God. But when you're living under the gospel and you see the hands of Jesus stretching out for you to come to him, then that's quite a different relationship you have with God. You still are not worthy to come to Jesus. As we say in our liturgy, we're poor, miserable sinners deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. But Jesus still calls us to him, for example, with the Lord's Supper. So here's how I would use this in a sermon to accuse the people in the pew. I've had individuals who are members of the church who do not come to the Lord's Supper because they do not think that they are worthy enough to come to the Lord's Supper and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, at one congregation, I visited with a woman who had been delinquent for some weeks, found out she had done a sin she thought was terrible, and therefore that excluded her from the Lord's Supper. See, she was living under the law, under the curse of the law. Namely, he that does not believe the law, he shouldn't be worth living. In contrast to the good news of the gospel, that God takes unworthy people. You know, we often make a distinction between God's justice, God's mercy, and God's grace. I want to talk about the word mercy right now. What does that mean in the Bible? What it means is that God gives tremendous gifts to people who do not deserve them, who are not worthy of them. So the church does acts of mercy and the acts of mercy are done to people, perhaps they have not used their finances properly and so they're short on food. Or maybe they haven't looked hard enough for a job. And you could sit back and say, no, you got to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and start taking care of your family. No, a work of mercy is done specifically to people who don't deserve it. Now, some people will not receive works of mercy because they don't want to be put in that category. And that's why it takes faith to believe in a merciful God. It takes faith to believe, first of all, that we are not worthy enough to receive anything from God. 
And because we have received many things, the Christian then has a response in his or her life of sanctification to begin to be merciful to others who really don't deserve our help. See, this is a wrong understanding of mercy that we give help to people who deserve it. No. We have chaplains in prisons. Do prisoners who have committed crimes, are they deserving of our help? No, not from a human point of view. But because we have the mind of Christ, we're willing to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. And, of course, grace is therefore giving them a gift that they haven't earned or merited. So mercy and grace are the attitudes of Christ. So the law is really pretty clear here. Look, you folks, God has been merciful to you, and look how unmerciful you are to others because, well, they don't really deserve it. You may have someone at work who is trying to be promoted, take your place, this kind of thing. You don't like them very much. And then they have a death in the family, and you're just quiet about any comfort that you could give them in light of the mercy of Christ. See, that's wrong. That would be a sin. That would be being quiet when God wants you to say something. If you're under the impression that you are not worthy even to come to the Lord's Supper, then you're going to have a wrong view of God. And there are a number of ways that that can be shown in a sermon where you accuse the members in the pews of not understanding God properly. And what's the gospel? Uh, The fishermen worked all they could all night. They didn't catch any fish. And then Peter criticizes Jesus. You know, we worked out all night. You know, you're a carpenter, so to speak. You don't know how to fish. Well, if I were God, would I have given a lot of fish to Peter in light of his criticism of Jesus? I I don't think so. But God does. Because he has a purpose here on earth. And that's to reveal who he is. And therefore, there were many people who believed that look at that draft of fishes that were caught. But many of them, a number of them, thought it was by the work of Beelzebub that he was working with the demons to do these miracles. So knowing the event does not move anyone towards salvation. And that's why the gospel promises need to be heard, not just the events of history. Because a person can believe all the events of history in the Bible, including that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and still will not be saved. As were a number of the Pharisees who knew, for example, he rose from the dead, and said it was a trick of Beelzebub. It's important to understand that what really 
brings salvation is a proclamation of the promises of the gospel. And the gospel is always tied to the life of Jesus Christ. That he died so that we will never really die. In other words, we need to show in a sermon how the members of the congregation, and each church may have a different way of doing that, are like Peter, who says, depart from me, God, I am a sinful man. That's sad. And yet many of the members feel that way. And that's why law and gospel needs to be in every sermon. There needs to be an accusation against the people in the pews, followed up by the treatment that God provides to overcome that accusation. Tomorrow with Mark Smith, we'll be taking a look at a hymn where it talks about God as the anointed one. What does that mean on tomorrow's Law and Gospel? Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker. P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.